And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. About, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 18 years ago, (laughs) I'd have to think too hard to figure out how much. (laughs) Austin came home one day. He was in ninth or 10th grade at Childs, and he says, Dad, I was at my computer. He says, you ever heard of uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God? I said, yeah, Jonathan Edwards, 1741, Enfield, Connecticut. He goes, what? How did you know that? I said, well, son, it's only the most influential sermon that's ever been preached on American soil. Um, so we ended up talking about it. Turns out that he, he was in, I forget, American literature or something, and the teacher was a Christian, and so this was one of the things that they had to do. And it is quite a hefty read. I encourage you, if you never, how many of you read it? Yeah, just a few of you. Uh, I encourage you to read it. You can find it anywhere on the internet. Just type in sinners in the hands of an angry God and boom, it's going to pull up. When you print it out, it's about 11 or 12 pages in 12 point type single space. So it's some serious verbiage. Now, my favorite line is, you know, I don't know, about a third of the way through. And it says, the ways that God has to remove wicked people from this world and send them to hell is so numerous that he doesn't even have to do anything miraculous. And that's the truth, right? Uh, it, was just, it doesn't have to do anything crazy to send them there. Uh, this sermon was used in remarkable ways, bringing many people to faith during the time that it was preached. Now, Jonathan Edwards went around the country preaching this, and it was, it just, it was like a, a revival to hit uh, because of this one sermon. Uh, and many more have been saved since then just reading it. And like I said, if you haven't read it, read it I encourage you to do so. Uh, Edwards graphically portrayed Betrays God's wrath and judgment on sinners. And he's using just a piece of Deuteronomy 32, 35. It's just one little phrase in that verse that says, their foot, talking about the wicked, their foot shall slide in due time. <laughs> it is quite the sermon. Uh, I need to check it out. Well, today I'm taking the liberty of uh, turning Edward's title on its head as we look at God in the hands of angry sinners. Just the opposite. God actually allowed himself in the person of his son to be taken into custody, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be falsely judged by these angry sinners who finally succeeded in executing him. Now, I hope that we'll avoid the mistake of these evil men who foolishly sat in judgment on Jesus and that we'll actually bow before him before the day comes when he returns and sits in judgment on sinners. Now, I also hope that by considering his willing but terrible mistreatment at the hands of these sinners, that we'll be moved by his grace and, or, or by his love and his sacrifice on our behalf to follow him with even more than devotion than we do now. Now, to understand this portion of Scripture, it's really helpful to piece together information from the other Gospels. We have four Gospels to reconstruct the probable chronology of Jesus' trial. Now, first, Jesus was taken to Annas, the father of Caiaphas, who was the sitting high priest. Now, Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas. And this, this actually shows you Annas' power at the time. They came to him first. If he says, yeah, then you move forward. So from there, from Anna's house, they took him to Caiaphas's house, the, the, the high priest. And um, Caiaphas was most likely presiding. It was illegal under Jewish law to try a person at night. 
So Caiaphas hastily convened an early morning meeting of the Sanhedrin, that is the official Jewish court, as it were, to kind of rubber stamp the verdict that was reached the night before. Then Jesus was taken for an initial meeting with Pilate, and of course Pilate immediately sent him to Herod. Herod sent him, they played with him over there a little bit, and Herod sent him back to Pilate, uh, where you had a second, more public meeting before Pilate and the people, and that ultimately resulted in his crucifixion. Now, our text shows us two sets of characters in this epic drama. First, you have the sinners who sat in judgment on Jesus. And then uh, you have Jesus who sat in judgment on these sinners. Then, by His majesty and power, and He will sit in judgment, in, um, terrifying judgment on them when He returns the second time. So we learn that although sinners presently sit in judgment on Jesus, the day is coming when He will sit in judgment on sinners. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for another chance to dive into Your Word. Pray that You'd give us wisdom and insight. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand these truths. Father, help us to see ourselves uh, in these evil men, Lord, who are mistreating Jesus. We meet mistreat Jesus today. So God, give us those eyes to see. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, excuse me. Well, first of all, our first major point here is that sinners presently sit in judgment on Jesus. Now, just as Jesus uh, allowed Himself to be bound, mocked, spit upon, beat, and rejected by these evil men, so now He tolerates the ragings of evil men against Himself. He could wipe them off the planet if He willed to do so, but He patiently endures their abuse. Now some, through His mercy, will come to repentance and faith. I hope that's you today. I hope that you have come to repentance and faith. Others are storing up wrath uh, for the day of judgment. But in His great patience, God allows sinners in this present age of grace to sit in judgment on Jesus um, in the sense of allowing them to hold and express their own views of Jesus even to the point of blasphemy. Now, for our instruction, Luke shows us two broad types of sinners. So, A, some sinners sit in judgment on Jesus in their mad pursuit of pleasure. Perhaps after the interview with Annas, this would have been early in the morning, as he is, they're waiting for the Jewish leaders to, uh, to reach a quorum so that they could actually vote. The Jewish temple guards who held Jesus in custody decided to have a little sport, a little fun with their prisoner. Many of them mocked Jesus, perhaps imitating his teaching style or repeating some of his claims, maybe with a, a Galilean, Galilean accent, um, or making fun of some of the things that he said. And obviously they were things that they had misconstrued. Now the other Gospels relate that they spit in his face, perhaps having a contest to see who could get closest to his lips. And then they made up a game of blind man's bluff, blindfolding Jesus and hitting him in the face, mockingly asking him to prophesy about who it was that hit him, if they only knew that he did know. Now Luke says there were, uh, they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. 
So their mad pursuit of, of fun and pleasure at the expense of Jesus caused them to do terrible things to the spotless, the sinless Son of God. Now, r- reading this kind of makes you nauseous. Your first reaction is to draw back in horror, and you think, how could anyone treat any other human being, much less the Lord Jesus, like that? But as Spurgeon points out, we need to just simply lay aside our righteous indignation. We think that's what it is. And we need to bring forth penitence. Because all of us have hit our dear Savior in the face with our sin. After all, it was because of our sin that He endured the abuse of these wicked men and went willingly to the cross. Now, hopefully, we're not as cruel as these men were, but we've all put personal pleasure ahead of the things of God. Perhaps some of them made sport of Jesus ignorantly. They'd never heard His claims or witnessed His miracles. But we have heard, we have seen, and yet we've made sport of our blessed Savior. We've all laughed at entertainment that mocks God and is evil in His sight. We've all indulged in pleasures that the Bible calls sin. And in so doing, we have done what these wicked men did to our Savior then. You remember Rembrandt, the great great Dutch artist? He has a famous painting of the crucifixion. And of course, your eyes are first drawn to Jesus there in the center on the cross. And then you notice the people around him and maybe some other attitudes and actions. And then when you move further out to the edge, you see this lone figure that's kind of hidden in the shadows. That's Rembrandt himself. You see, the, 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 the master realized that his sins had helped nail Jesus to the cross. So he painted himself in that picture. You know what? So should we. Well, B, some sitters sit in judgment on Jesus in their mad pursuit of power. Not pleasure, but power. On the surface, the Jewish leaders who sat in judgment on Jesus were less cruel. They were more civilized than the guards who made sport of Jesus. They went through the formality of a trial under the guise of justice. We, we know that it really wasn't, but that's, that's what they were acting like. They asked him questions about his claims. Uh, the problem is they weren't seeking the truth so that they could conform their lives to that truth. They weren't inquiring about Jesus so that they could be his followers. Their minds were already made up. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to hang on to the power uh, that they already enjoyed. They wanted to keep living as they were living, being Lord of their own lives. So their mad pursuit of power caused them to really prejudge Jesus and totally disregard His claims. Now, the way that these powerful men conducted Jesus' trial, it violated a number of Jewish laws. And I'm not going to catalog them for you, but from start to finish, the Jewish council's trial of Jesus was simply a mockery of justice, and it was in violation of their own laws. The questions that they asked Jesus, they were devised to trap him in his own words so that they could accuse him before Pilate. You see, if he claimed to be Christ, a king, then he stood in opposition to Rome. And since Rome denied the Jews the right of capital punishment, and since the Jewish leaders didn't want to draw fire from those in the crowd that actually liked Jesus, they wanted grounds to accuse him before Pilate and then let Pilate be responsible 
for crucifying Jesus. Now, these were religious men who instigated and carried out this mockery of justice against Jesus. At this point, the guards who, who mocked and beat Jesus and the leaders who led this unfair trial were religious men. They were fixing to celebrate uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, Passover, the Feast of the Passover. They were at temple each week for religious services. They professed to follow the law of Moses, and yet their heart was far from God. Now, we should learn a lot from them, primarily that participating in religious, religious rituals or just going to church, it's not enough. True Christianity is a matter of the heart before God. To use religion as a covering for our own seeking of pleasure or power, that's to live as if there's no God who knows our every thought and motive. It's to deceive ourselves in the worst possible way. Now, we also learn from these religious men that we're all subject to the danger of making up our minds based on our personal preferences or desires and then coming up with evidence to support our case. These men liked their position of power and influence. It was financially lucrative for many of them to have the monopoly on the temple business. And when Jesus upset their tables and disrupted their profitable schemes, they knew that they had to get rid of him. Ignoring all of the evidence that backed his claims to be both Lord and Christ, they went looking for contrary evidence to support their claims that he was simply an imposter. Now, here's the trick. We will all act just like that if we're not careful. I, I know... Um, Several Christian leaders, pastors, who have spoke against divorce until they go through a divorce. And then suddenly they find new evidence that their former position was in error. They're trying to conform Scripture to their desires. Truth is, we need to get ourselves out of the way. We need to judge our pride and our sinful desires. We need to seek to obey God's Word as it is plainly written. If we go looking for verses to support our sinful desires, guess what? You will find some, but you will be under God's judgment for doing it. Now, these Jewish leaders needed to examine their own hearts and honestly ask the question, who is Jesus? We've got him here on trial. Who is Jesus? Are the claims about himself or his claims about himself, are they true or are they false? And the truth is, number two, the day is coming when Jesus will sit in judgment on sinners. Jesus' calm demeanor, in spite of his wrongful treatment, that was already a judgment against these wicked men. A sinner would have been yelling about his rights being violated. He would have been threatening to get even. But Jesus bore all of this abuse silently before God as a lamb led to the slaughter. Now, when to be silent would be to deny the truth, Jesus actually spoke up, giving testimony concerning who he is. Uh, there was a great chasm between the views of the Sanhedrin and Jesus' claims. Both cannot be true. They stood in opposition to one another. Daryl Bach puts it this way, either Jesus is right or the Jewish court is right. Jesus' claim is either blasphemy or deadly, serious truth, end quote. 
Although they ask with the wrong motives, the two questions that the Sanhedrin put before Jesus are two supreme questions that we all must consider. We all have to deal with these questions. Number one, if you are the Christ, tell us. And number two, are you the Son of God then? Two very important questions. So A, Jesus will sit in judgment on sinners because He is the Christ. The first Christ, the first question, uh, if you are the Christ, tell us, that was insincere on the part of the Jewish leaders, and, Jewish, and Jesus knew about it, and he replies, in effect, what good will it do to tell you since your minds are made up? He says, you're not going to believe me even if I tell you. They weren't asking the question out of a heart that wanted to know the truth. That wasn't their purpose. They were trying to bait Jesus, to set him up so that they could report to Pilate that Jesus was claiming political leadership of the Jews in opposition to Rome. And Jesus' response shows us that when we're dealing with scoffers who are not interested in really knowing the truth, but who simply want ammunition to shoot back at us, yeah, don't waste your breath, be silent. And in spite of their evil, evil motives, uh, the truth is, the, f- the fact is, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. We see it throughout the book of Luke. I'm just going to read a few passages. Luke 2.11, the angel told the shepherds, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In 2.26, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit had, uh, uh, had, had revealed to the aged Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In 3.15, 3.15, Luke says the people were in a state of expectation and they were wondering whether John the Baptist was the Christ. And John clearly denied that he was and he pointed people to Jesus. In 441, we learned that the demons were proclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus always made them be quiet, didn't he? Luke says he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. And it was not time for him to be revealed. In 920, Peter made his famous confession that he believed Jesus to be the Christ of God. Jesus is clearly God's anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. It means anointed one. He's the one that God has installed as king over the nations who sits at his right hand of power. Now, to confess Jesus as the Christ is to confess his right to rule not only over the nations, (laughs) but also over your own life. It means that God has vested Jesus with his own authority to to, to, to rule. Do you remember the last thing that Jesus said there in Matthew 28? It's right before the Great Commission. They're all up on on this hill. And uh, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. All right? So he, he claims for himself that, yes, he has all authority. To resist Jesus' lordship is to resist Almighty God and to be in rebellion against him who will judge all the earth. Well, B, Jesus will sit in judgment on sinners because he is the Son of God. Jesus goes on to tell the Jewish leaders that from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That brings together several Old Testament prophecies. First is Psalm 2. That predicts that the sovereign rule of the Messiah... uh, It predicts the sovereign rule of the Messiah who is installed as God's king and he's called God's son. 
Then you have Psalm 10, where the Lord, uh, Yahweh, tells David's Lord, the Messiah, to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. And then lastly, Daniel 7, 7, 13 through 14. Daniel sees one like the Son of Man who comes up to the Ancient of Days. That's God. And the Ancient of Days gives him dominion, glory, and an everlasting kingdom over all peoples, nations, and, and tongues. So again, Jesus is asserting that he is both Lord and Christ, the ruler of God's eternal kingdom who will judge the nations. Jesus uses the phrase son of man in reference to himself, and he does it quite often. But the Jewish leaders respond by asking at this time, are you the son of God then? You see, they knew scriptures. They saw the connection because they knew Psalms. They knew Daniel. They knew that the Son of Man, the Messiah, is God's Son in a unique way that no one else is. So Jesus is turning the tables on them. They thought that they were sitting in judgment on Him. Well, He lets them know that really He is sitting in judgment on them. Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, he talked about this Jesus whom they had crucified God had raised up to his right hand where he had installed David's throne as both Lord and Christ. Now Jesus answers their question about being the Son of God by saying literally, you say that I am. They said, are you the Christ? He said, you say that I am. Why didn't he just say yes? Now I've often wondered that years ago when I read it. Why does he just say yes? I think the reason is... Uh, it, it's the same reason he spoke in parables. He told us back then, in order that seeing they may not see, and in hearing they may not understand. Parables revealed truth to the seekers, but it concealed truth from the scoffers who continued in their spiritual blindness. Well, even so here, Jesus is saying, yes, I am, but he's not saying it straightforwardly because he doesn't want to respond to men who are asking from the wrong motives. Now, clearly, the Jewish leaders knew that he meant yes, because just look at their conclusion. What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. In other words, he's claiming to be the Christ. He's claiming to be the Son of God. Well, that brings us to see. Jesus will sit in judgment on sinners because they have heard his testimony but rejected it. The same with these men. They had heard it, but sadly, they had not submitted to Jesus as Lord. And that's always the issue. How do we respond to the testimony that we have heard concerning Jesus? God allowed himself in the person of his, eter of his eternal son, Jesus, to be put into the hands of angry sinners. Jesus willingly went to the cross, despising the shame, but now he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're running your own life, then you're not in submission to Jesus as Lord. If you don't repent and yield to his lordship before you die or before he comes again, you will no longer sit in judgment on him. He will actually sit in judgment on you and it will be an eternal judgment. He is the Lamb of God who suffered as the penalty due to sinners. Isaiah 53 talks all about that. But soon, and borrowing from Ron J. Crouch, and very soon, 
we really don't know how soon, but soon, when Jesus comes again, rebellious sinners are going to cry out to the rocks. This is what they're going to be asking the rocks. Listen to this. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They know what's coming, and they're begging for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the Lamb of God. I hope you're in anticipation of the second coming of Christ and you're ready for it. There's a story about an archbishop of Paris who was preaching to a large congregation and he told them about three worldly, ungodly men who, or, or, or youth who, who, who wandered into a cathedral. Two of them bet the third that he wouldn't make a phony confession to the priest. Now, the priest knew what was going on. So when the pretending penitent had finished, he said, to every confession there is a penance. Now this is, this is the, art, the priest talking to the young man who he knows is not sincere. He says, you see that crucifix over there? Crucifix is a statue that has Jesus on the cross. Okay, he says, you see that crucifix over there? Go over to it, kneel down, repeat three times as you look into the face of the crucified. You did all this for me, and I couldn't care less. So the young man emerged from the confessional box, ready to go collect on his bet. But when he told his friends what the uh, priest had said, they said, Oh, no, no. First complete the penance, then we'll pay you. So the young man walked slowly toward the crucifix. He kneeled down. He looked up into the statue, and he began, You did all this for me, and I... He could get no further. Tears flooded his eyes. His heart was broken with his sin. There, his old life ended and his new life began. The archbishop concluded his sermon saying, I was that young man. Now, I, I don't agree with confessions to priests or penance or crucifix statues, but there is an application for us in that story. The account of Christ's suffering is told in the Gospels. Read them. Then come to his table, which is the picture he gave us to remember him by. That's why it says on the front of the table right there, do this in remembrance of me. So when you come, next time you come to the table, in your heart, say, you did all this for me, and I, then fill in the blank for yourself. If he gave his son into the hands of angry sinners on your behalf, shouldn't you give your all for him? Let's pray. We thank you for the challenge of your word, Lord. It never ceases to penetrate. Uh, Father Alter Viviru says that it is, is powerful and, and it's alive and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces down to even the joints and the marrows and the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So God, I pray that you would use your word this, this morning to convict us. Show us where we are spitting in the face of Jesus because of our sin. We are thank you, thankful for your grace that calls us into your presence. So God, do a work in our hearts this morning uh, as you see fit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, if you're sitting out there, maybe you need to, uh, you know, struggle with those couple of questions. Um, are you the Christ? Uh, are you the Son of God? You need to answer that for yourself. You can't depend on your parents or your brothers or sisters or your grandparents or anybody else. This is a question that you have to deal with. Every person does. Who is Jesus? Well, he says that he is the Christ and he is uh, Lord. I hope that you know him that way. If you don't know G- if you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, I encourage you to call out to him today. Ask God for his mercy. Trust Jesus for what he accomplished on the cross on your behalf. That's all salvation is, believing. Scripture's clear. We believe in Jesus Christ, that he paid the price that God demanded, a price we could never pay. If we, if we lived a perfect, do you understand this, that if we lived a perfect life, anybody in here or everybody in here, if we lived a perfect life from this time on, that would, that would in no way make up for what's happened before. All we'd be doing at that point is doing what God wants us to do. It's what's required of us already is perfection, holiness. God told the, the nation of Israel, and Peter repeats this for us as believers, we are to be holy because God is holy. So even if you live, live the most perfect life sin-wise from here on out, that, that'd be good for you. It would do nothing for the sin that you've already committed. Only Jesus pays for that, and He does it. He did it on the cross. So if you need to come to Jesus today, you do it. If you're a believer, I hope that you've just been challenged to consider sin in your life. Because when you sin, that's what you're doing. You're spitting in the face of Jesus. You're hitting Him in the face. You're condemning what He has done on the cross. You're judging what He has done on the cross, saying, oh, I'll go my own way for a, for a moment. That's wrong. That's sin. All right. This is between you and God. Look at your own heart. If that sin is there, confess it to Him. 1 John uh, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you need cleansing this morning as a believer, go to God. Confess it. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.